0: Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this
1: program, Nancy Goodman Torpey and Peter Torpey. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. On this show, we usually talk with and about people with visual impairments or some kind of visual limitation, but this week we'll be doing something a little bit different, We'll be talking with somebody with some physical limitations, and we'll see that some of the challenges that these people have to overcome are sometimes very similar to the issues that people with visual impairments have to overcome.
0: We'll speak with Gabriella Serrato-Marx, a geology graduate student at MIT about her experiences and thoughts about receiving an education and having a career in a STEM field as a person with a disability. And STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. But first for our tip of the week, this week's tip comes from Gabi.
2: I do think that it's really nice to work together with other people who have different disabilities. It's been really nice talking with you and um, thinking about how what I'm going through is similar and how it's different from people with low vision or who are blind. And so I I hope to learn more and to learn to do better because I know how to help myself, but I don't necessarily know how to collaborate as best I can with people who have limitations or differences that are not the same as mine.
0: I think people with one disability are more sensitive to how to interact with people with another disability. I mean, Pete's been blind all his life, and we've been together for 35 years. So we're both pretty comfortable with blindness. And so when we meet somebody who's in a wheelchair or hard of hearing, it's easier to get over that initial awkward hump that it's like, geez, I don't know how to interact with somebody who's got this issue. Mm -hmm. Because we've been over that hump from the other side so many times.
2: Yeah, it makes it a lot easier to make the connection quickly and not have it be so awkward.
1: Right. Yeah. And we can all learn from each other's experiences since, you know, as we went through this interview, we'll see that there are many shared experiences and they're not so different issues sometimes that we face.
0: Let's start by meeting Gabby and learning about how she got involved in science.
2: Hi, I'm Gabby Serato I'm a third year PhD student at MIT in the Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences Department. Um, I study past climate change using cave deposits, and uh, I'm also interested in issues of accessibility in science.
1: And you've been interested in science from a very young age, I understand.
2: Yeah, the first time I got interested in science was probably my second grade biography project. And um, I have a picture of that of me dressed up as Marie Curie. So since then, I've always been really interested in all kinds of science, and um, especially women in science and sort of the history there as well.
0: And how does a young child dress up as Marie Curie?
2: I borrowed my mom's shawl and I had a microscope and I think I had like a long dress because in all the pictures of her, she was very like proper. So I I wanted to emulate that.
0: (laughs) Well, at least you didn't have any radium in your pocket.
2: Yes, thank goodness.
0: (laughs) So most of our listeners have visual impairments. I gather you do not, but you have a different kind of disability. Can you describe that?
2: Sure. Yeah, I'm still sort of in the process of getting a diagnosis, but I recently found out that I have a chronic pain condition. Well, I've had the chronic pain condition for almost two years now, but I found out that it could be due to a lot of food allergies that I just got tested for, and also Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, the hypermobility type. So My joints are inflamed from me eating a lot of the things I didn't know I was allergic to, and they're also hypermobile, so they're um, moving more than they should be. And between those two issues, I've been having a lot of fatigue and just problems with everyday tasks, cooking, typing, sort of the typical things that someone does with a 9-to-5 job. So it's been a little bit of a challenge figuring out how to uh, make that work. But in addition, I do go out into the field for caving. So trying to figure out what kinds of accommodations I need to go into the field has been a challenge as well.
1: I'm kind of curious, how quickly did this condition of yours come on? Was it sudden or took a few years?
2: I've been trying to figure that out too. Um, My doctors have been asking me that. And I think that it started pretty slowly, actually. Um, I First, I injured my back, and then I started having problems with my jaw and then my hands. And at this point, it's sort of widespread throughout my body. So it, it started as localized injuries or pain and kind of spread from there.
1: Wow, how sad.
2: Boy, you're awfully young for that. Yeah, a lot of people have been telling me that. But there's a big community of people that I've met on Instagram, actually, who have a similar condition, Ehlers-Danlos hypermobility or the other types, and they are all about my age as well. So it's Really? Yeah, there's a lot of people going through a similar thing.
1: And I know that working on a PhD is a lot of work, especially if you're at MIT, but do you have any time for fun? What do you do for fun?
2: I go to Maine a lot with my family. My parents live up there. So I spend some time up there. I really like to garden. It's sort of a dorky activity, I think, for a 24-year-old. But I really enjoy growing like little squash and um, hopefully things I can eat. I haven't been very successful so far, but I do enjoy that. And I like to really be outside. I like to swim and canoe and kayak, so I try to still do those things, even though it has to be for shorter periods of time than it used to be. I used to be both a competitive swimmer and a college water polo player. I'm used to a really active lifestyle. It's hard to be uh, hanging out at home. But I also have a cat that I uh, like to spend a lot of time with. So when I'm not out and about, I try to relax as much as I can, um, watch a lot of good Netflix shows, documentaries, stuff like that.
0: So we recorded this interview a couple of months ago, and we recently asked Gabi about any improvements she's seen. And she replied that she had good news and bad news. So she's had a whole lot less fatigue and has even been able to successfully complete a week of field work with full participation in all caving and hiking. But the bad news is that she still has a significant amount of pain. But with at least the improvement in the fatigue, she's able to do many more things than she was before. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success,
2: success, 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 success.
0: This week's focus topic is Gabby's experiences in a STEM field as a person with a disability and what she's doing to raise awareness of issues that people with disabilities
1: face. So, as Nancy mentioned earlier, usually we interview people with some kind of visual impairment or disability. And this interview is a little bit different, but what caught our attention about your blog about chronic pain was the fact that, you know, you have to deal with this if you want to do what you want to do professionally and personally, but you find other ways of dealing with things or interacting with your colleagues. Can you talk a little bit about that and what this has meant to you, this life-changing event?
2: Yeah, it's been really interesting to figure out um, how I can still have the kind of career I want as an earth scientist and also succeed in a way that other people view with a lot of value. So uh, I mentioned in my article that a lot of faculty in geoscience departments think that there should be a field course requirement for any kind of geology undergrad. So before you have your degree, you should spend at least a week, maybe more, in the field looking at rocks. Um, And I'm not sure that as I move forward with my career that I'll be able to lead those or even take part in them as an assistant or anything along those lines. So I'm trying to figure out how to still have people view me as a competent scientist, even if I have a long list of things that I can't do or that I need help with.
0: What kinds of activities do you need assistance with or adaptations in order to perform?
2: So, one of those is carrying heavy rocks out of the cave. So, we go in and we take samples, and then not only do you have to crawl out of a cave, but you have to do it with 20 to 50 pounds of rocks and equipment on your back. So, I can't do that at this point, and trying to figure out how I can either ask for help or um, carry a smaller amount and sort of the balance between still participating but also um, getting done what I need to get done has been tricky so far.
0: And that's a perfect example where the details of your issues are different from those that a blind person might have. Right. But obviously doing a field trip into a cave to collect specimens is going to be challenging at least for a blind person although we have Mm -hmm. interviewed at least one blind geologist and he went through his whole career and did just fine but again had to make accommodations.
2: Yeah you have to make changes. I'm interested in trying to figure out how to make um, textured maps which some people have done before the um, IAGD, the International Association for Geoscience Diversity, has some textured maps that they made for anyone with low vision to be able to do similar field trips as well. There's a lot of parallels for sure. What kinds of things are they doing? They're doing a lot of really interesting work. Uh, They have a pretty detailed website, but what I have heard that's coming up is an accessible cave tour. So it's going to be A fully accessible field trip for anyone with any sort of disability or limitation. And I think that's going to be really fun. I really hope I get to tag along for that. But beyond that, they also do a lot of advocacy work. And they have a lot of their volunteers are engaged in education research.
1: Yeah, and as you mentioned, there are all kinds of ways of making different contexts accessible. I mean, in your case, going through mountains and caves, I wouldn't guess, you know, people put in ramps and all, but there must be ways they can make some of this a little bit more accommodating to people with mobility problems.
2: Yeah, it's very true that there are not a lot of paved roads directly leading to a cave. Um and then once you do get into any of this outdoor exploration you sort of have to go off that paved road for it to be considered hiking, I guess. (laughs) So it's a challenge to figure out what to ask for in some ways. There are some really cool assistive devices now, like powered wheelchairs with really big wheels so that you can basically off-road in your wheelchair. Um, And I haven't used those personally, but I've seen some pictures of them and they look like they have a lot of potential to be helpful to people and um, for snow as well. I don't know really where the, the balance is between having full access to the outdoors and changing the outdoors so that it's no longer the same, especially because I am an earth scientist and I don't want to see full swaths of forest paved over um, in the name of accessibility or anything else. I'm not sure exactly what the answer is. I think there are some caves that have um, flattened surfaces, and those can be easier to walk on um, for tourists or really for anyone. Um, I've been saying that I'm sort of like taking your grandmother out into the field, so the things that you might have to do, like walk a little bit more slowly or at least what I have to do with my grandmother. And so trying to explain to people that even though I'm 24, you still have to act like I'm your grandmother outside at least has been sort of a a funny transition
1: for me. Well, and I think in all these circumstances, there's a certain degree of customization that has to be done. I mean, sometimes you come across these issues and you really don't know in advance how you're going to deal with them, but you maybe know that you can or you have some tools at your disposal for addressing these issues, and it depends on the situation, as you say. There isn't a one-size-fits-all solution.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I I would guess you've probably figured that out as well in your career, that sometimes surprises come up and you uh, have to just figure out how you're going to deal with it right in that moment. Since I'm still pretty new to this, I don't think I handle it as well as other people might um, who have either been born with a disability or who have just had more experience asking for what they need. But I tend to have sort of a panic moment for at least a couple minutes where I figure out what I need to do. (laughs)
0: I think another issue is some disabilities are more visible than others, and so you have a totally invisible disability. I would be considered totally able-bodied, but you know, there were a bunch of years where I went through having real trouble with carpal tunnel syndrome, and I had awful all sorts of hand pain and wrist pain and ultimately surgery, mm-hmm. and you know, people would look at me and say, well, there's nothing wrong with you, and then I would try to do something and it wouldn't happen. And that's another difficult interaction when you look like there's not a problem, but there really is.
2: Yeah, I'm sort of interested to hear um, how that has been different for you or for other people with low vision as well, because I know sometimes that's visible and sometimes it's not. So it's it's interesting to think about those parallels as well.
1: Well, I think there are several issues here, and one of them is Can you do your job? Can you do the professional things that you want to do and find perhaps alternate ways of doing that? And the other issue is, and you touched upon this, how do you appear to your peers and your colleagues? You know, for example, someone else can carry those rocks out of the cave for you and you can get your job done and assess the rocks back in the lab, but you want to feel like you're, well, to make a pun, carrying your own weight, so to speak.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: And you don't want to give the impression to your colleagues and your peers that you're a quitter or you can't do something.
2: Yeah, or lazy, any of those stereotypes that come with it.
1: Right, right. So one thing, when I read your blog, it reminded me of my own situation going through graduate school pursuing my PhD in engineering physics. And I really wanted to be an experimentalist. Mm. And I had very limited vision at the time. Um, maybe I used the CCTV for a while, although nowadays I can't see anything. But I tried working in the lab, and after a year or so, my advisor, you know, called me in, and we had a discussion, and he said, you know, you sure you want to be an experimentalist? And I said, yeah, this is what I want to do. I like being in the lab, doing practical things. He said, well, look, I've seen you work, you know, I'm sure you can do anything you want to do. And just realize it may take a little longer, it may take a little bit more effort. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it, and I said, well, you know, graduate school is kind of fun, but eventually you want to get out. And I'm somewhat of a pragmatist, and I said, you know, maybe there are other ways of scratching my itch to be a physicist and do research, and maybe being in the lab isn't the best thing for me or the most efficient thing. So I switched to being a theoretical physicist and did a lot of computer modeling. Mm -hmm. When I got to Xerox, the way I scratched my itch of being an experimentalist was I worked right across the hall from a lab with a bunch of experimentalists, and I was in the lab all the time. And it really made for a very good interaction. And I think an unusual interaction. There are so many people who are into computer modeling, they don't want to step in the lab. (laughs) And vice versa. So many people in the lab... They don't want to be stuck in front of a computer. They want to be moving around. And so I was actually able to be in quite a unique position to be able to bridge the gap, speak both languages, and be comfortable with both sets of people. So in some sense, it worked out kind of well for me.
2: Yeah, that's really cool. I hope to find myself in that kind of a position eventually.
1: So we touched upon a little bit earlier the perceptions of colleagues and peers about your work and what you're doing. How have you been received there at MIT in terms of working with other graduate students or the professors and having these types of issues?
2: My advisor has been extremely supportive of me and um, has offered to basically do whatever I need to make sure that I can succeed in my program. And I have a lot of good friends here who have helped me and on days when my pain is really high I have a friend who likes to carry my backpack for me which is very funny so she has one backpack on the front and one on the back she has to carry her bag as well Um, but it's been really nice to see how strong a lot of my friendships have remained even though I sometimes have to say well I actually can't um, go bowling with you or I Can't go out drinking with you until however late at night. I'm just going to stay home and rest here. Um, So, a lot of my friendships have remained really strong despite the changes to my life that I've had to make. I think there have been a couple times when people who aren't familiar with what I'm going through have asked me, like, oh, why aren't you carrying that? Or, oh, you don't feel like helping. And they're sort of joking, but it puts me in a really awkward position of having to figure out whether to tell them, hey, I'm having this health issue or even what to say because I don't have a very clear diagnosis yet. And so trying to decide whether to tell them something and make them feel awkward when they were just trying to tell a joke or letting it go is something I haven't figured out yet.
1: Well, and as Nancy said, you know, the condition you're dealing with isn't really visible to people. It's harder to explain. Right. You know, for exactly that reason, When I was in Rochester with my friends for the past 20, 30 years, everybody knew I was blind. And since I was mostly with Nancy, I rarely used my cane because she's a good guide. I use it at work, but, you know, when we went out socially and restaurants and stuff, I didn't. When I came to Colorado, I actually made it a point to take my cane virtually every place just to sort of make it easy to get over that discussion about, oh, I'm blind. I'm not just standing here in the corner, you know, not (laughs) looking at you because I'm weird. Yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it... Kind of is an easier way of overcoming that situation.
2: Yeah, having a visual marker of your access needs or why you might be acting a certain way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It sort of bypasses the awkward discussion about, you Mm -hmm. know, come over here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I've generally found through my education and career that, you know, particularly the people you work with every day, I found them to be generally very supportive. You know, my colleagues in graduate school, when I didn't have all my books recorded on tape, before classes started, they offered to read my quantum mechanics book for me, which certainly isn't an easy task. And then, you know, even the managers and people I work with at Xerox, you know, anything I needed, they were very eager to bend and, you know, get the adaptive equipment that I needed.
2: Yeah, that's really nice to hear. It's nice to see that people are willing to be helpful when when we need it.
0: I think in general, people like to help if they know there's a need.
2: Mm-hmm. you know they feel good about it
0: and it can make things work more easily for everybody.
2: Yeah, and I think also flipping the script from how can people who don't have disabilities help people who do and thinking about um, how we as people with disabilities can, tell our colleagues what we can do and what we are really good at and not have it just be this sort of pity or inspiration or things like that that I'm sure you are familiar with.
1: Yeah. Fortunately, I think these days people are a lot more aware and you know conscious about accessibility, disabilities, how to deal with it. And you know they're trying to be more inclusive in general. And that's a big help. People just used to stick their head in the sand and ignore it and throw people like that in a you know a separate room or something. Mm-hmm. Things have improved, but I guess there's always a ways to go.
2: Yeah, and I'm excited to see what types of things come up uh, in the science fields, and especially with new computer technologies and apps being designed pretty much every day, it seems like um, it'll be cool to see how that impacts people with disabilities around the whole world.
1: Yeah, new technologies have made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. What are your plans after graduate school? What would you like to do?
2: I'd like to become a professor. Um, I went to a small liberal arts school, Bowdoin College in Maine, and I really, really enjoyed my experience there and the time I spent working one-on-one with professors or in small classes. So I would like to teach in a similar setting. But I'm trying to keep my options open because I am aware of the academic job market right now. So I'm really interested in science writing and science communication and trying to figure out how to best bring science out of the ivory tower of academia and into everyday people's lives. because. All the scientists that I know are also just regular people, so it would be nice to have less of a disconnect, I think, between people who are involved deeply in science on a daily basis and people who are more curious or have questions about things. My mom was asking me recently how Hawaii formed, and she said, like, I know it's a volcano, I know it's lava, but I don't get it. I don't understand how all this could be lava. So we had a really interesting discussion about um, geology and volcanoes. So I think simple things like that are a lot of fun. So trying to find ways to communicate with the public and kids and all kinds of people about the science that really interests me.
0: And you haven't been waiting until you graduate to start doing that. I see lots of information on your webpage where you're available for giving public presentations on all of those topics as well as writing about them. So it's great. You're getting started early.
2: Yeah, thank you.
1: I think in summary, there's several messages that people can take away from this discussion we had. And one is, that the first thing to do is to recognize what limitations you have and kind of accept what those limitations are. And once you understand that and have come to accept your situation, you can deal with changing your situation and making accommodations so that you can really live your dreams and do what you want to do. And in the end analysis, it's a lot up to you as to what you'll accomplish. You have to learn to be proactive, learn to look for creative solutions, and just keep driving forward if you want to be successful. And that can certainly be done. We've talked to many people who have done that.
0: Now for this week's final item, how you can reach Gabby and or follow her progress.
1: If people wanted to find out more about you or your blog or your website, where would you send them?
2: I'm most active on Twitter, so I would have people tweet at me. My username is G-S-E-R-R-A-T-O-M-A-R-K-S. That's my full name. I would be happy to talk with people more there, or I tweet GIFs. I don't usually have image descriptions with them, but that's something on my to-do list.
1: Especially after this conversation, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. Right. If I'm telling people to come check me out and it's not very accessible, that'd be a little embarrassing.
1: <laughs> and your website?
2: It's gabriellaserratomarks.com, dot com. So, G A B R I E L A S E R R A T O M A R K S dot com.
0: And if anybody wanted to reach you by email.
2: My email is G-S-E-R-R-A-T-O at MIT.edu.
0: You talked about the International Association for Geoscience Diversity, and they seem to be doing some really cool things. How would people find them?
2: The website is www.theiagd.org. They're a nonprofit, so they are on Facebook and Twitter, and they also have a contact form on their website as well.
1: And as usual, if you're looking for any of that contact information, go to the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. I'd also like to remind people that we've interviewed many visually impaired people with interesting careers in sciences and many other fields and seen how they've modified what they do or overcome challenges in order to pursue fulfilling professional careers. And if you want to search for some of those shows, just go to the search field on our website and put in the word science or STEM for science, technology, engineering, and math, or even employment, and you'll come up with interviews we've done with people in a variety of fields to see how they've accomplished these deeds.
0: That's it for show number 1825. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about the WeWalk Smart Cane with the project leader Kurshat Salon. This can either be a standalone device or you can just attach it as a handle to your existing white cane and use it for help in navigation, not only as a white cane, but it also has a sensor that will alert you to objects at head level, so you don't collide with them. But it also interfaces with your smartphone and with some of your smart home device technology. And so it does a lot more than just help you navigate. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show, or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094.